Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Enders, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Harald Koberg, the author of a game studies publication from 2021 called Freies Spiel or Free Play. The publisher is Büchner in beautiful Marburg, Germany. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice, and share this episode with your friends. And now back to the show. What needs are satisfied in digital gaming and what does the shift of these needs satisfactions into the digital space say about the social realities in which they are embedded? We hopefully get rock solid answers to these and more questions right now. Harald, welcome to the show. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Howard, I wonder if you uh, kick things off uh, by telling us a bit about yourself and your line of work. Yeah, well, as you've heard already, um, my name is Harold Kobach, and I studied philosophy and cultural anthropology in Graz, um, which is a city in Austria. And throughout my studies, I also um, worked as a reviewer for the federal government of Austria because they were looking for games they could re recommend to parents and grandparents um, that would not just... Um, be okay for the children to play but uh, that would really be recommendable for them and that was my first step into a theoretical um, thinking about digital games so um, throughout my time at university I was already somehow working in the pedagogical field around video games and from there on I continuously tried to get beyond that and to get a um, possibility to to keep working in that field 
And um, after doing um, a few talks and, and workshops here and there, I got the possibility to build up an own branch for digital games at a local NGO called Ludovico. Ludovico um, was focusing on play uh, in very many different forms, but um, pretty much just analog forms of play, um, on, on culture of play, but also on the pedagogics of play. And I got a funding um, in order to, to build an own branch there for, for digital games or for digital play. And that's what I've been doing thing since um, 2012. Um, which also ran alongside my, my master's and PhD studies. Um, so I started to try to connect the different fields. I, try, um, I tried to be the one who understands the fascination of, of digital games, but at the same time knows the research and understands the sorrows and, and thoughts of the pedagogues. Um, and what I did there was that I conducted a lot of uh, workshops, talks, um, but also just um, pretty much um, very simple gaming events um, in order to get all these people together. So I try to, to view myself as pretty much a mediator between the players, the pedagogues, but also the research. And I kept um, on doing research until 2020, pretty much. I'm still doing research, but I've, I'm not um, any longer directly bound to or directly connected to a uni university. So in um, cultural anthropology, I did both my master's and my PhD thesis on digital play or on video game culture. My master thesis um, was focused on the discussion around video games and violence. Of course, not trying to answer the big questions where, uh, whether that would be um, dangerous for, for the people who play or whether they might become more violent through playing games. That was not so interesting for me, but I was interested in how this discussion was led and how the dynamics work there. So that was my master thesis. And then in my PhD thesis, I focused on the questions that are also asked in this book we're talking about today. So I fo focused on the question of why do people play? What do those games mean for them? And what impact do they have on the social worlds they live in? Yeah, and maybe one last step that is pretty much uh, pretty relevant, I guess. Um, I also work for the local government um, right now um, where we broadened the, the, the topics I'm working on. So there I'm not just focusing on digital play or, or on video games, but I'm, um, I'm working there as an expert for digitalization and society. So I'm trying to discuss and work on this intense field of or this intense question of uh, what does um, what digitalization does. To society how does it change the way we communicate how does it change the way we get our informations and we interact with our informations so that's at the moment that's the second big part of my work and now and then i'm still teaching at universities or at schools um, focusing on either one of those two big fields mm, right and uh, it just just came across my mind that 
not only you're the first guest from Austria, which is pretty exciting, <laughs> uh, but um, it's true. Uh, we have met uh, last time. We have seen each other, I think, at Frog. This is a um, a conference in in Austria, and I really can. I really witnessed there that you're an excellent speaker. Very impressive. Very impressive talk you gave. Yeah. Well, Thank you very um, much. yeah, it's true. Um, circling back to um, Freies Spiel, your book, please tell our listeners, um, you have talked about it a bit, but now um, let's get to the nitty gritty. How did you come to write Freies Spiel in the first place then? Well, the book is very much based on my dissertation, so on my PhD thesis. Um, but I wrote the thesis already with the book in mind. Um, so I tried to um, get to the, to, yeah, to, to, to be very open about the way I, I write this um, scientific text in order to make it interesting for people to read, because my goal was to, to write a book that was an academic book, of course, but that could be read by people who are not from the field of cultural anthropology and at the same time by people who might be into cultural studies in, in some way or form, but who might not have any knowledge about game studies or video games. So um, from beginning to write the, this thesis, I was trying to, to make it very readable. But after finishing my PhD, I, I still um, put some work in and tried to make it easier to read and better to understand. And, um, and yeah, I added some comments, especially for people who might not know the terminology of the different fields in order to make this book interesting and readable for people um, yeah, from, from all different um, aspects of life who might be interested in reading it. Um, yeah, so what I basically did was that I, um, after finish, finishing my thesis, I went on to, to look for um, from for public uh, for for possibilities to to publicize it, and happily Büchner Verlag is more and more interested as I am witnessing and as if, as you have witnessed and you, yeah. you've been an active player there too. Um, there. Um, very active in supporting um, game studies books and bringing out game studies books. And by, by now they have a pretty pretty great list, I think, of books and authors on the issue. So that's a great chance for people um, of German-speaking countries to publish their um, game studies texts and, and books. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one thing that might, um, was of course interesting is um, my, my two supervisors um, for the PhD thesis. One of them, of course, came from cultural anthropology and the other one came from my second, um, second studies from philosophy. And she, um, she wrote in, in, um, in her report that she was quite, su uh, quite surprised that it's okay to write like this in, <laughs> in the cultural studies, yeah. but she still thought that it's, it's, it's a great text and an interesting text. But, um, I think that tells a little bit about, um, uh, the way I wrote the book that of course it, it tries to, to, to bend the possibilities you have within academic writing in order to make it interesting to read for everybody um, who might be interested. 
Yeah, yeah, funny enough, um, two observations here. You're definitely right. I mean, the the situation situation around uh, publishing houses in regards to game studies in German-speaking countries is, or, or at least in Germany, is getting better and better. So um, no comparison to, let's say, uh, the situation 10 years ago. That's for sure. And uh, what's also funny is that um, I was just about to ask the the exact same thing. How did you, your supervisors react to your to your plan to get it more reader friendly? But um, yeah, it's it's a funny story that you just <laughs> were mentioning. Oh, I'm really surprised. That's that's the way one can write also this book. Hmm. Let's see. <laughs> It's funny. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the, the great things about um, well cultural studies and especially cultural anthropology. It's being um, the way it's being taught in Graz that they have a very open approach to 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 academic writing and also to the way um, of academic working. Um, um, so I think that's a field where you get great possibilities to do things like that um, and and to be. Um, a little bit more detached of the chains of, of classic academic work, which usually or quite often turns out to be very hard to read for people who don't come from that exact field or from that exact um, yeah part of work and part part of academic uh, part of the academic world. So this also sounds like um, you could definitely recommend Graz as a hotspot for future game studies scholars if you want to, to let's say, be, be, be not less, less rigid in your endeavor in academic sense, but to have a certain kind of, of, of research freedom topic-wise and also in your tonality? Well, I think in Graz we have the same problem that many of the German-speaking universities I know have, that there is nobody really um, officially related to, to game studies issues. Um, mm -hmm. there, there, there's no institute for that, and um, there are just a few people here and there working on, on these subjects. So I think what you need to do is to find a field um, that you want to work in and find the institute to do it. But I think... Um, that the institutes and the professors are being more and more open towards the issues. I know that um, around the time when I started writing my thesis, other people told me, yeah, I wanted to do something on game studies, but my professor said that that's just not a thing we would do. Um, and I also had these difficulties um, work or searching for funding for my thesis that people told me, well, your institute and your professors are not into, into game studies, so um, why do you think you're at the right place to do it? Mm. But at the same time, I believe that um, there's a lot of liberties and a lot of um, freedoms here in order to work the way you want to work um, on these issues. But you have to find them um, for yourself and pretty much you have to create them for yourself. Yeah. People and their voices. This gives me the opportunity to actually circle back to your book now. Now, what's really great about it is you let gamers themselves have their say and follow their traces of the described fascinations and passions for gaming, the act of gaming and games. So um, as far as I understand, it is not only about stories and interactions with the game, but also about the rules and limits of communication about spaces of unfolding self-dramatizations and norm setting. Would you agree to my reading here and, and what is your take? 
Yes, I would agree. And um, I would say that my primary interest in, in, in video games is what they do with the players or what they mean for the players. So I'm very much interested in the player's perspective. And I conducted very open qualitative interviews asking players to tell me about their lives with video games. So mm. it was pretty much um, biographical. I, I asked them, what did you play at which time of your life? Who were the people that were somehow connected to, to playing games? So where did you get your games from? Who motivated to play these specific games? Or how did you get them? For many people um, in the beginning, they just played whatever was there and then got into um, being informed about um, what play, uh, games are out there and trying to find them. Um, but I was also very interested in the reaction of the people around them, so who might have been criticizing them for playing the games um, and which reactions they got when they, um, when they talked about their hobby or when people were confronted with them playing video games. So this was a very open approach and... I think one of the things that um, pretty clearly came back was that people talked very little about narratives. Um, so while I believe that a big part of game studies is still very much focused on uh, narratives and an analysis of narratives and also, of course, um, the analysis of game dynamics, um, when you talk to, to the players, that's not the core things they're talking about. For them, it's a social thing. It's it's um, making experiences usually very closely connected to other people. Um, and that does not just mean um, multiplayer and online games, but also when they play on their own, they feel that through playing this game, they are connected to a huge number of people around the globe who are also playing these games. So... That was the, that were the dynamics that I was um, very interested in, and that became more and more interesting for me um, through uh, while conducting these interviews and looking for for theory that fitted what I um, what I ex experienced when talking to the players, and that also led me to um, getting a feel for this very hard to grasp world of digital play because um, Jesper Yul, for example, he he writes about video games as them being half real, yeah. which is, I believe, part of the truth. They are not real, but they are real in some way. Um, so I guess most of us in game studies have moved beyond this idea of a very um, narrow magic, magic circle where mm -hmm. things that happen within the game have no... Um, no impact whatsoever on the world around them. We pretty much know now that this is not the way things work. Games are not just a way of evading realities, but they are enlarging our reality. And of course, the different realms of reality, as I might call them, um, they are in strong interaction with, it, with each other. And that's where it starts to get interesting. And that's where players start to tell you interesting stories because um, for example, when telling um, when telling you about their play, they they often jump between first person and third person when they talk about what is happening within the game. So sometimes yeah. they say, "Well, now I'm walking down that corridor," and one moment later they they would ask, 
why can't he open this door? And both of the times they're, they're, they're um, talking about their avatars. And sometimes they even talk about the game designer saying, I don't understand why they wouldn't let me open this door. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, of um, reflection of what is happening there, that there are many people, uh, many different um, people connected to what is happening here. And many people, many different people have an influence of, on, um, on what is happening here. And that's where um, video games, I believe, get so fascinating because they open social worlds for us that work differently than the um, the, the social work uh, worlds of our everyday lives. But at the same time, of course, they are closely related to them and in strong interaction with them. And that's what makes them so fascinating for, for the people who play them. And of course, that's not the first thing they might tell you when you start to ask them about why they play, how they play, and what fascinates them about playing video games. But when you get into talking and when you let them talk, then you, you will find a lot of stories. And that's what happened to me that make you realize that these shifts between different you could call it ontological states or mm -hmm. different realms of the real. Um, that's where things get very um, fascinating for the players. And I think that's one thing that hasn't been in the focus of game studies very much up to now. Of course, there are some pe people doing um, similar work um, as I am doing it. But I think a lot of focus, as I said, is still on um, the gameplay and the narratives and I think that there's, there's a lot, uh, yeah, an, an awful lot to be found when we take a closer look at the players and the way they actually interact with the games, the way the games interact with them, and the way their play interacts with the bigger social context around them. Yeah. Well, it's really exciting. I was just thinking about the, the way you were mentioning when players, uh, for example, as you were mentioning, talk about why why could why couldn't I open up that door, that specific door, and it's also exciting uh, to see whenever and this is something I can obviously observe while I'm playing uh, on my own. I feel like I used to tell people I did this in the game, but whenever it comes to failure, for example, my, my I tend to to project it into the third person because obviously I wasn't able to make that jump. So, but when I talk about it, of course, why can't this just damn fool not hold on to this rooftop or something like this? It's suddenly it's not why couldn't I do this? Seconds before I was talking about the total identification of the player, uh, character, and myself, but in the moment of failure. I just push it gently away, so that's not my responsibility anymore. And to me, that's a clear sign of 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 the actually the it's proof even or soft evidence that um, this is me at the moment. But if if it's not going the way I want it, it's suddenly not my 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 mistake anymore. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and there you're pointing towards one of the 
um, yeah, big, big um, ideas or big theories of, of my, my book and my thesis, um, because I believe that this is one of the, the exact dynamics that help people to cope with the things they experience within the game. So, for example, I work a lot with teachers and parents, and they tell me that young people these days cannot cope with um, not being able to do something. They, they get frustrated very, very, very quickly, um, and they always blame everybody else if, if things don't work. And then I ask them, well, now it's 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 a, li a little bit in decline but a lot of them are playing fortnite and fortnite means that one person wins and 99 people lose <laughs> playing this game and those those same young people those same youngsters they can perfectly cope with that in fortnite of course they get angry every now and then but um they love to play this game so Video games have this power to make these experiences more pleasant um, and more interesting and more motivating for us. And that is, I believe, very strongly related to what you have been um, telling us right now, that um, at every given moment, they get the possibility to choose how much it's them and how much it's the game that makes things difficult for them. And at the same time, they get to choose how serious they want this game to be. That's what Jesper Yule, to come back to him, um, yeah. is um, calling the, the emotional gamble. He says the more emotionally invested we get into a game, the more we can get out of it, but the more it might hurt us if we don't um, turn out to be successful playing the game. So when I try again and again and again, and I put a lot of work into the game in order to be able to do it, um, then it's being harder and harder for me to stop trying because I know that I've invested so much. But at the same time, I can always pretty much stop it and say, well, it's just a game. There's no need to get angry about it and try to pull myself emotionally back out of the game. And that's something you can also witness when you um, when you watch people playing games. Um, at Ludovico, the NGO I'm working at, we also have these opportunities, these afternoons, where we just um, have consoles and PCs there and people can come and play video games. So I have a lot of opportunity to just be there and, and watch them and listen to what they do when they play games. And one of the reoccurring um, dynamics that are, that are there are people provoking each other, trying to connect the, um, their failure in the games to their personality. So they say, how dumb can you be um, that you, you won't be able to do this within this game? Mm -hmm. And they try to get people angry, connecting the gameplay to their um, individual um, um, skills. But at the same time, at the point where, um, where the players um, get too angry and might throw around the controller or, or shout back at the people talking to them, then they say, why, why are you so upset? It's just a game. You're, you're a bad player if you can't um, disconnect these two things from each other. Mm -hmm. So that's also a game that players, a meta game that players um, play while playing games, um, that they know that it's not totally a real thing, but at the same time, it's real enough to be connected to our individual skills. And that's something people play with. And that is also, I believe, very important um, when it comes to the bigger social impact of these video game worlds, um, I, I one thing that um, should be pointed out pretty early, I guess, in this talk today, um, is 
that I believe it's very important to talk about games as experiences. So as the bigger thing. And for me, playing a game also means watching YouTubers, looking for information online, discussing with friends when meeting them about the game, um, or maybe even thinking about new strategies in the game while you fall asleep. Um, I think that's all part of playing the game. Of course, it's very hard then to to draw a line around the game and saying, well, this is the game and this is not the game anymore. That's getting harder and harder the more open your perspective is. But I think from a um, social point of view, you will not understand the impact and the, the significance of games if you're just thinking too narrowly about the moments when we actually sit in front of the screen and play the games. Yeah. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wonder um, how does this this connect? Because um, you also write about um, insecure masculinity, and I wonder how how do you connect the dots here? Is there any connection? Is it is it an obvious connection, or is it something you had to to uh, really dig deep into the layers of um, of sociality, basically? Well. I think when you do research the way I did it, um, it can or yeah, it, it it's not unusual that it becomes very obvious to think about masculinity mm-hmm. because it's something that comes up in the interviews and it comes up in the experiences of players. Of course, um, very strongly when you talk to female players because they have their experiences with masculinity in um, playing spaces. But also when you talk to heterosexual men playing video games, um, because they will tell you about the, the yeah pretty much the needs that uh, that are satisfied by the games. Some of them more reflected, others maybe more naive about what is happening there. But um, for example, people told me, you know, I'm quite critical about these ideas of heroism and saving the world, one person saving the world, but. Um, there is some urge within me um, of uh, wanting to be that and wanting to be that hero. And it's a beautiful thing that I can do it within video games. So one interviewee, for example, he said, you know, um, I, I, I would love to change this world. I'm, uh, I see so many things that need to be changed and I'm also trying to change them. But in 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 the, in the physical life outside of the di- digital um it's very hard and you, you get very, very rarely you get positive feedback trying to change things. Um, so even though I know 
within the video games it's not the real thing i still experience it to be to be very um yeah to be very interesting to me to to be um yeah um very nice for me to, to have these possibilities within the games so that's one of the points where you where you pretty clearly see that there is that there's an aspect of masculinity when it when it comes to playing games but of course and i think that's the more relevant part when you look at gaming communities at the way people communicate while playing games and of course at the bigger um, issues dynamics like gamergate and um and and what came from it um it's pretty obvious that there is a lot to to look at and a, a lot to think about so um your question was whether that was connected to what i said before and i think it's very closely connected because um what people do when they use video games as um spaces of um of doing gender and of um trying to live up to very specific ideals of masculinity is that they use this half real aspect of games because many of them are faced with inner conflicts they live in an everyday world that ask them to be men so we're we're still living in this world of hegemonic masculinity where social hierarchies are very closely um, connected to ideals of masculinity and the closer you get to that ideal the easier it will be for you to move up in the social ranks and of course there are many people who don't succeed at doing this um, and for them especially for them of course for the others too but especially for them it can be very interesting to move into these digital realms because video games offer everybody who plays them a form of empowerment and this empowerment in many cases in most of the games i would argue very strongly caters to very um traditional ideas of masculinity of heroism and of dominance of um fighting the others and living in a world where one person needs to stand the ground and 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 fight everybody who who's who's being there against him so for um for people who are pretty unsure of how to deal with the with the whole issue um whether they want to criticize this these um these patriarchal structures or whether they want to be successful within in them um video games offer the possibility um of not really having to choose because i can experience a game as pleasure um, and play it even though i might be quite critical about it and if i'm for example acting aggressively masculine within a gaming space and i'm being criticized for that i can always take a step back and say well you know it's just a game i'm just provoking within the games and that's not the way i am and that's not the way i want to be and the very interesting thing is since we get to choose at every given moment as i said while playing the games how serious how real we want it to be um we can even use this to 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 deal with our own insecurities and if you move one step um further on to 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 the real um toxic spaces of gamergate forums and so on and so forth um there you get this in their whole idea of argumentation they will um you will find arguments that are very 
um, enraging for for people and where, where they're confronted with a lot of um, um, of of pushing back because they're they're so extreme in their positions, but they always jump between putting out these positions and then moving back and saying, well, if you're getting angry about it, you just don't understand the internet. It's just fun and games. It's, it's just about the laughs and the giggles within within the internet. We're all just trolls trying to provoke you. Yeah. So it's this game of provoking the snowflakes. But at the same time, of course, they are being very serious about the things they say. But this digital realm of play gives them the possibility to move back and jump back out as soon as the pressure against them is getting too strong for them. So um, there, I believe, we have this very strong connection of how game worlds and worlds of play work and how these um, political, um, yeah, I wouldn't call it discussions, but political dynamics um, within gaming spaces work. A lot of these people have moved into the gaming spaces because they felt to be under pressure in trying to live up to their um, ideals of masculinity outside these gaming spaces. So video game spaces gave them the chance to, to get closer to these ideals. And now for a few years, they have been criticized within these spaces for um, the way heroism and masculinity um, is, is lived there. And that, of course, turns their whole um, defensive dynamic against the people attacking them because it's pretty much putting the finger on the wound for themselves um, because, of course, when moving into the digital realms, they know that this is not the real thing and that they can be successful here, but this does not mean that they are successful or that they are being perceived as successful people everywhere else so they know it's this half real thing and when people confront them with this dynamic and put the finger on the wound then of course you get um, big emotions exploding mm. yeah maybe this has also something to do with with my next point i was wanted to talk about you write that digital gaming culture and the debates that surround it as you're clearly showing in your book are a significant arena of social power struggles for interpretive and decision-making sovereignties in an ever more rapidly changing world. Could you please deep dive a little bit more into that argument for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, since we have been um, all around this argument for, for, for the last um, minutes, I'll, I'll try to, to build it up um, very, very, very quickly. Um, When I did my first interviews, my first big surprise was how strong um, stigmatization was still uh, connected to video games. So, of course, people tell you that video games have reached the center of society and that they're mainstream now and mm. part of pop culture. And yeah. that's true on the one hand. But on the other hand, if you talk to the people and ask them who they talk to about playing video games, for example, they will tell you um, that that's not something they talk about on the first date or that's not a hobby that they will um, they will tell their boss when, when they try to get a new job. Um, that, that, that's just something that you keep to yourself. And especially um, adult players, if you ask them about the people they talk to about their games, it's pretty much other gamers. Um, so 
it's a thing that it's a bubble that contains its um, um its issues within itself because many of these people have made the um, experiences that when they talk about playing video games in big parts of their free time to people who don't play games, then they are confronted with these old stereotypes of that being antisocial behavior um, and so on and so forth, of them being violent maybe or or at least glorifying violence. And since they don't want to, to have these same discussions um, again and again and again, they just keep to, them, uh, to themselves and talk to other people whom they know um, of that they like to play video games. So that was one of the first things I found when I when I um, started my interviews. And I thought, well, there's quite a big price still to pay um, if you play video games because you're confronted with all these um, dynamics of stigmatization and of stereotypes. So why would people do it? On the other hand, of course, there's also a lot of time and money being invested in the hobby. So there needs to be an output for them. And that's when I started to ask about or to look for their motivations and to look for the needs and longings that are being satisfied for them within the games. And this um, this issue issue of masculinity was one of the, the of the topics that I found one of the motivations I found um, for people playing games, and there there were um, some others that I'm talking about in the book, and what I realized was well they have these needs and longings and because they don't find good opportunities to satisfy these needs in other parts of their everyday life, they move into the, the, the gaming worlds and the worlds of digital play, even though they know that to some extent, this is not the real thing. Um, as I tried to, 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 to sketch um, using this, um, this, um, this idea or or the, the thinking about masculinities mm. so they know it's not it's not what they um it, it's it's not the real thing it's not what gets them um gets them the success they wanted to to have outside of the games so still they use the games to satisfy these needs and longings and that's where i started to ask myself well why are these um, satisfactions being pushed into the di digital realms? And what does that, again, tell us about the social realities around them? And that's, I believe, where it gets very interesting and not just on a very theoretical, academic level, but also when it comes to the, to the bigger, broader discussions about video games. Because... Um, for example, when we talk about young people spending so much of their time playing video games and evading realities, then that is usually in the in the broader media it's it's very strongly um connected to very harsh criticism ab about the medium of video games but quite rarely the question is being asked well why do they feel that they have to run away from their realities or why do they move away from their everyday lives into the gaming worlds? So even when it comes to these everyday or um, broader um, discussions about digital play and video games, I think this thinking about why these needs and the satisfaction of these needs is being um, moved into the digital realms um, 
is help could help us to 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 move on with these discussions and get away from just blaming the medium which didn't help for the last 30 years and won't help for the next 30 years to mm. come yeah definitely yeah most definitely well we are entering the final round now so to speak this is where i'd like to ask my guest for a little meta reflection so um firstly What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book, Freies Spiel, that did not make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one, where do you see game studies as a research field in general at the moment? Well, um, thinking about the first question, um, of course, there were some little things that I that I took out in order to to make it one whole of a book um, that that I stopped following. I think one aspect that is very interesting, and also, yeah, it, it it's a deep dive in in theoretical thought and also philosophical thought. But I think it could. If we, if you make the round, it could get very interesting thing um, for for people thinking about um, the the bigger social impact or the, the bigger impact of digital play is um, using post-humanist theory, um, mm. which is getting stronger and stronger throughout the last years and. Um, should not be confused with transhumanism, which is trying to enhance human possibilities um, or human lives through um, digital or technological means. But posthumanism is pretty much a critique of the humanist idea of the human being the center of the universe and everything, everything evolving around them. And I believe that within this um, theory, uh, this yeah, it's, it's a big. Um, field of theories that uh, that are um, being sum, um, summarized as post-humanist but um, these theories help to understand why we as a global um, society or as, as humanity have um, gone uh, yeah have, have, have fallen into so many crises um, throughout the last year so for example if you talk about the climate crisis then that is of I think pretty obviously, obviously, very closely related to um, the human being too clearly in the center of our thinking and not thinking about other actors and the relevance of um, a dynamic of of other actors um, within this global system. So, why I believe this is interesting for game studies is because um, posthumanist theory is trying to dissect the idea of uh, of the individual and see all the different actors that somehow build up what we then experience to be our subjective individuality mm -hmm. and i believe that amongst all the people out there video game uh, players of video games are the closest to really experiencing that in what they're doing. Because as we've been talking about it um, earlier, um, if you think about the language people talk about their, um, with which um, people talk about their, them playing, they jump between these different actors. And even though they might not really um, uh, name them, they, they might not talk about the designers, but, but as I said, when they say, I don't know why they won't let me open that door, then yeah. they know that the avatar is not just their representation within the game, but it's also in some way the representation of 
the ideas of the designers. So we could also argue that the avatar is a tool of communication between the player and the, and the game designers. And you could also say that it's a point of contact between the social context of the players and the social context of the game designers. So, of course, the game designers can only come up with games that somehow are in the fields of the thinkable within their social realities. And at the same time, the player needs to be able to understand what is happening there and what the game is asking them to do. And since the game is an interactive medium, they need to be given opportunities to somehow choose what they want to do within these games. So when we think about the avatar as the, as the individual or as the hero of the game, people some of them um, more more openly and somehow uh, some of them more um, subconsciously realize that it's not just them choosing what this avatar can do and what what he or she does but um, also many other factors that are factoring into that so i believe that the post-human experience that is at the moment a very theoretical thing and construct um, led by um, a, a, a small bunch of, of, of great philosophers mainly. Um, this experience is very closely related to the gaming experience. So when um, if we think or if we believe, and I think that there, there, there's a, a great lead there, if we think that we can get into new ways of thinking about the world through post-humanist thought and through a new understanding of our um, existence in this world and what individuality means and what a subject is, then making this experience within playing video games um, could be very interesting and is maybe the most practical thing we have um, when we think about that. So I think there's a, a very strong real, um, connection there where we really could get into the utopian hope of the video game experience helping us to solve the big problems of our times. Hmm. So that was your first question. So yeah. I would love to have um, included more of this, but um, it, it was just by far too much. Um, it, it could be a second book or a second thesis, and there's a lot of work that needs to be to be put into that. Um, your second question was the my hold on, my hold view on, of hold the on. State did you did I hear just yeah. the word habilitation? No, <laughs> not at the moment. I'm I'm not connected to uh, to a university at the moment, so. I don't know of possibilities of um, write, writing a habilitation um, without being connected to university. <laughs> and at the moment, I must say, I'm pretty happy that I'm not um, working for a university because, um, and that's pretty much a connection to your next, uh, to hmm. your second question, um, that I believe the academic field um, in the way it's being more and more neoliberalized is very difficult to work with, especially when you come from the humanities. Because if you if you have a pessimistic point of view, I would say that academic work is reduced to numbers, how much how many publications you have, um, and how many um, I don't know <clears throat> how many theses you wrote wrote, and so on and so forth. And I think that just doesn't tell us anything about the quality of the work, and especially when it comes to humanities. If you start asking, well, what's that for and where can you publicize that and is it relevant enough, then you won't get um, very far. And especially you won't get very far within game studies because, of course, um, 
there's there's this big critique of um, that being so relevant for our world. Do we really need to 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 delve into that? So I think, and that's something, especially in in in, in the bubble of of German speaking game studies scholars. Um, Throughout the last one or two years, we've seen quite a lot of people moving away from universities because they just didn't didn't get the opportunities to to do their work there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I personally am pretty happy that I'm having um, uh, that, 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 that I have found um, occupations that give me the possibility to keep on doing theoretical work but very closely um, connected to practical work and i think i have more freedoms even more freedoms in research right now than i would have at a university if i would not be able to to get a big funding for a big project where i get to do whatever i really want to do um yeah so i i don't think it will be a habilitation very soon (laughs) Well, Harald, so, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have talked about this uh, at the aforementioned conference as well a little bit, and it's really a tricky situation. You know, lots of games, game research actually is is really happening on on, on private accounts and in private times because there's no real uh, institutionalized place for us now. Speaking, see me air quotes. Um, uh, it's a tricky situation. Maybe it's getting better. I hope, I hope. I hope. I'm really hoping for it. But well, we'll see. And I think just to, to to give a small note on my view on the on the state of game studies right now, I think that there's also a lot of potential in there because the fact that it's just a few, it's a, it's a network of people that are somehow connected to to some institutes, and often they are pretty much the only people in there. Um, in their closer academic surroundings that are focused on these issues. And I think that that um, brings out a lot of creativity and a lot of different um, perspectives on the game studies. So I think that there is some or yeah, a lot of creative potential coming from um, game studies not being um, institutionalized. But at the same time, as we've discussed right now, um, it's quite problematic because many people don't manage to stay in academia because there is no institutionalized game studies possibility for them. Of course, there are some institutes and some universities that are doing something there, but it's still quite, um, yeah, it, 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 there's still not so many um, possibilities out there. So I think on the one uh, on the one side, it would, of course, be good to somehow unify this idea um, of game studies, also of course from a from a scientific point of view, to get a clearer picture of what game studies is and what might be research on digital games, but not game studies and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and of course, especially when it comes to institutions, it's easier when you know that there are these five or these ten institutes in the German speaking world where I can try to get a job. But at the same time. I believe that when it comes to the the, the creativity of thinking and the freedom of thinking, there is also some positive potential when it comes to this scattered um, network that that we have right now, 
um, and that brings out a lot of great interactions and a, a lot of great thinking and and yeah books and publications so I think it's a lively it's a lively um, field and a lively network and I love the way it, we are being connected and um, getting into discussions um, across disciplinary uh, disciplinary borders and so on and so forth but yeah I would of course also hope that um, there are, there are more, might be more institutions um, more institutes more universities who somehow see the the, the the possibilities there and do something for the game studies that would be great for the future hmm. yeah we've taken a lot up of your time now um so let's bring this this house down so to speak what are you working on right now and of course what will you be playing next Well, at the moment, I'm finishing a a, um, a new book, which is not an academic book. So I'm trying to piece together all the things that um, are in this in this um, academic book that we're talking about today, and mix it up with my experiences from my work um, and from my from my everyday interactions with video games and their players and their parents and their teachers and their youth workers and so on and so forth um, and to lie, um, to write a more um, a more easy to read book about the whole issue um, and I'm just finishing that at the moment it will also be published by Büchner Verlag in, mm. in the next year I hope and yeah so, the, so that's the big project I'm working on right now And the second question, what am I playing? I just started to to play God of War. Um, I finished Horizon Forbidden West and and played um, quite quite some Sifu in between. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to catch up on on a lot of games that I I'd love to have played throughout the last year. Um, but I'm I'm also the father of a one and a half year old son, mm-hmm. so my play time is quite limited at the moment. Um, so I sometimes just pick up a game, play it for one, two, three hours, and then put it away again, just to get an idea of what it is, and um, then move on to the next one. Because my possibility to play games for hours and hours is at the moment a little limited. Hmm. I see. Well, kids, 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 you gotta love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a great project, and um, I'm very eager to find out more about this book. And maybe we will join a regroup and talk about that book as well. Then let's see. Um, for now, I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So take care and goodbye. Thank you very much. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you're an author and or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.inderst at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. In the meantime, please check out our other Game Studies podcast episodes on the New Books Network. And that's it for today. See you in a bit.